I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The Unionist, Labour and Alliance parties have urged their supporters to vote to stay with Britain, a result that's a foregone conclusion. But since many Catholics will boycott the poll, it'll probably be a flop. The Northern Ireland Sovereignty Referendum of 1973. Ever heard of it? Not surprised if you haven't. It's very rarely mentioned, but there was a border poll. It was a referendum on a united Ireland held at the height of the Troubles. Ballot boxes for the referendum were taken to the polling stations in the early morning. Special precautions have been taken to guard the isolated stations in the country, but there's a guard placed on every one of the 388 stations throughout the province. After the poll had begun, the bombing began too. How did it come about and what happened? The border referendum was promised to the people of Northern Ireland at the time of direct rule. For better or for worse, that promise is now being honoured. In this episode of The Bell Tale, lecturer, writer, commentator and deputy editor of the website Slogar Tool, David McCann, tells me all about the 1973 referendum. David, what happened in 1973? So you're right to point out there actually was a referendum, the lesser spotted referendum. Many people don't realise that it actually happened, but it did take place on the 8th of March, 1973. It had a paltry 59% turnout. And just to put that in context, that is lower, four percentage points lower than the number of people who turned out on the 5th of May of this year. So you may think, my goodness, why is that so low for such a big question? Well, it was boycotted by nationalist voters. So north of 400,000 people did not vote in the referendum, which did cast some aspersions about how useful uh, it was and why did nationalism boycott it? Why do parties like the SDLP not take part in it? Well, Jerry Fitt, the then SDLP leader, worried that it might raise tensions and that it could it could escalate what was a worsening situation in 1973. Um, so the nationalist parties, not just the SDLP, but other nationalist forces, boycotted the referendum uh, altogether. The turnout in Catholic areas has been minimal, exactly as expected after their parties called for a boycott. Indeed, so few have turned out that Republicans haven't bothered to pick it. Can we go back slightly and, you know, with the troubles the way they were and, you know, there was Sunningdale after this and the, the Stormont was collapsed and there was, a, uh, there was a lot happening. So what was the motivation for the government, for the British government to hold this referendum and everything that went with it, the whole security operation? So at the end of March 1972, uh, the Stormont government is uh, prorogued. Uh, so Ted Heath, the then British Prime Minister, prorogues the Stormont government, uh, suspension as we would call it uh, today. 
And the British government are faced with a task. What do they do now? Uh, don't forget, Northern Ireland had had self-government for 50 whole years. Uh, this uh, th- There was no specific department to deal with Northern Ireland. This is where the Northern Ireland office gets created. Um, uh, so the British government are faced with, w- with trying to figure out what to do. So they produce a discussion paper in October of 1972. It's a discussion paper entitled The Future of Northern Ireland. That's where they lay out options. And it's important to note there was next to no agreement on the future between the main parties. So you think about the the Unionist Party, which was led by Bram Faulkner, former Unionist Prime Minister. They wanted a return to majority rule. They wanted the system that had served them so well. A lot of other Unionist parties were around at the time. So don't forget, you've got the DUP, you've got the Vanguard Unionist Party as well, led by Bill Craig. Um, They want a return to majority rule as well. And then you've got the SDLP, who, of course, want to be as far from that as possible. They want a greater role for the Irish government uh, uh, in in Northern Ireland. They want power sharing. They want all these different aspects um, uh, there of reforms. And of course, that's it's hard for the British government to reconcile those two those two things. Fifty nine percent of the people turned out, which when you think that almost all Catholics, uh, according to reports at the time, didn't vote. That's actually quite an extraordinary turnout from the Protestant community. Yeah, so it's if you look at some of the reports from back then, so 591,000 people voted for the option to stay within the UK. So just to give you a thing about, about the ballot paper, what were people actually greeted with in polling stations uh, they were given the option to stay with the UK join with it join with uh, the Republic of Ireland and 591,000 people voted for the option to stay uh, with the United Kingdom there were some people who did come out and vote for Irish unification just under 6,000 people so that represented about 1.1% of valid voters so about 90 nearly 99% of people um, uh, cast their vote for staying within the union. But as you rightly point out, um, uh, that uh, that 43%, uh, sorry, about 41% of people didn't come out and vote at all. So it, it worked out to roughly about 57% of the electorate, when you work it out, voted to stay within the UK. And and you've mentioned already, but nationalists boycotted it. I, I look back again at, you know, Jerry Fitt. Uh, he was still talking in terms of an all-Ireland vote at that stage. Was that just blather or did did everyone know there was no point in taking part, uh, you know, in this ceremony rather than a referendum? Well, interestingly, that was still a big issue for nationalism, even going into the 1990s. Sinn Féin were still having that debate about, you know, even the Good Friday Agreement, should it be an all-Ireland vote or should it be... Uh, the two different states, and of course, they got around that in 1998 by having the referendum, two different jurisdictions, but on the same day. Um, so that was kind of how they got around that. So in the early 1970s, remember, you're trying to orchestrate this in the middle of the troubles. To minimise security risks, the Belfast ballot boxes are being stored overnight in the city hall. They'll leave for polling stations under armed escort for the poll to open at eight o'clock. The army say they're ready for any trouble at polling stations, especially those in sensitive streets between Catholic and Protestant areas. The Northern Ireland Parliament has only been gone for for just uh, just under a year by that point. So uh, there's a lot of flux. And don't forget, this is around about the time that 
it does look like and there is talk of the fact that Irish unification may just be round the corner that that Britain was going to was going to potentially pull out of here and within the SDLP there were differing factions on that there there were some people who were in the more mold of well let's make Northern Ireland work and there were those who were more about know the Irish dimension and getting Irish unification so even then there were those sort of debates in the SDLP. Maybe we'll talk about the SDLP uh, further down the line. Um, I did notice now the Alliance Party, and you said the Alliance Party was was quite young at that stage, and the Northern Ireland Labour Party, they were solidly in the unionist camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The Alliance Party put out um, a, a platform saying without Britain we're sunk, um, and the Northern Ireland Labour Party uh, canvassed as well for staying within the UK. Again, not not entirely surprising because, of course, the Alliance Party do have that did at that time have some links back to the old liberal wing of the Unionist Party at that uh, at that stage. They had some links back to that. Um, but they articulated very much a pro-union position. And another dynamic that's important to remember here, particularly within the Vanguard movement, there is talk of an independent Northern Ireland within sections of loyalism. Basically, this idea that once Stormont was removed against the will of the Unionist people, and forget there were big rallies protesting the removal of Stormont, uh, the Unionist government uh, were seen to have been ousted illegitimately. There were talk in some circles of loyalism about a potential of an independent Northern Ireland. And just again, um, you know, in big debates about about you know Northern Ireland potentially going it alone. Um, Professor James Mitchell has observed the 1973 referendum suggested that par- sovereignty rested with the people of Northern Ireland and not Parliament West- at Westminster. She said Northern Ireland had had long been a self-governing region. So do you, do you think that it, that it did set a precedent? Well, it, it did because interestingly before that, it, the, the platform would have been that it was up to the Parliament of Northern Ireland to decide, well, not Westminster, but the Parliament of Northern Ireland. That was something that parties at Westminster had had, had expressed. Um, and certainly the Conservative Party um, had that platform that it was up to the Parliament, again, I know Parliament, not people, of Northern Ireland to uh, to make that decision. So, so yes, th- this did. And look, th- this was essentially a British government that was trying to find its way through getting a solution. So they, so again, look, if people are, as they see it, fighting over kind of constitutional divisions, well, then hold the referendum and get it off the table. However, there has been criticism levy, levied at the, at the Ted Heath government at that time that maybe they would have been better canvassing more public opinion on what shape a reformed Northern Ireland might look like. Because, of course, that's what they very quickly get to by the end of 1973 with the Sunningdale Agreement. So how did we get there? Did the referendum influence that or was it just was it just a distraction? Or were, were we always heading towards Sunningdale? It was a damp... Well, the campaign was such a damp squib. You know, if you compare the Scottish independence referendum, if you compare, like, referendum on this, you know, in places like Quebec... Where the turnouts are north of 85% in both cases, there's massive rallies, there's massive interest. In this one, it's a bit of a damn squib because a whole section of the community just essentially boycott it. Um, uh, so again, it wasn't really seen as the big conversation about the future that it probably could be. But look, for the British government, they they, they do this. Then they get to the assembly election a bit later that year. Um, uh, and again, this is seen as reassuring unionist leaders. So Bram Faulkner, I know, took some comfort from this result that, well, this is it. This has been put out there. There's been a massive victory for the pro-union forces. He can take a chance. He can take a chance. And that proved to be uh, a bit of a bit of a, a faulty uh, logic because, uh, of course, Bram Faulkner's political leadership ends pretty soon after this as well over the UWC strike. I think a lot of people 
have heard that term Sunningdale, but only in the famous Seamus Mallon quote, Sunningdale for slow learners. Tell us, what was Sunningdale? Sunningdale was the first attempt to really match a power-sharing government in Northern Ireland. So again, we take it for granted today, but power-sharing was a really radical idea. The Ulster Unionist Party ran in 1973 on a platform that they wouldn't share power with any party that had a pro-United Ireland platform. That included the SDLP. Pro-United Ireland platform. So it so nationalists serving in the government was a radical idea at that uh, at that stage um, uh, of 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 political debate. So the, the Sunningdale basically constructed a power sharing executive with uh, Faulknerite supporting unionists. Um, uh, there were also the SDLP and the Alliance Party were in there too. So three parties. It also had a north south dimension, which is probably for unionism the most controversial part of it. Um, the Council of Ireland was created, which basically was a formal cooperation over different areas. It resurrected the old Government of Ireland Council of Ireland, which was constructed uh, and was meant to be in place after 1921 to facilitate cooperation between North and South. However, nationalism saw, many nationalists saw one thing in the Council of Ireland, you know, famously I think it was Hugh Logue that said, the SDLP MLA, that this would be the vehicle that would quote-unquote trundle unionists into United Ireland. And of course, for um, uh, for many unionists, it was just seen as, as as that's what it was. It was a covert way of getting getting Irish unification by the back door. And that's what made the agreement so unsellable for Brian Faulkner. And he, within days of taking up position as Chief Minister of Northern Ireland, loses a vote in the Ulster Unionist Council over the council over over the Council of Ireland, and he resigns as uh, as Ulster Unionist leader. And but yet continues on as Chief Minister. And the Ulster Workers Council, uh, obviously. Just to put that in context, or, 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 or organised a very successful general strike against that deal. Of they course. did, and then so uh, there's a snap election in February of 1974. The anti Sunningdale forces combined the Tribal UC, as they were called. They win all but one of the parliamentary seats in Northern Ireland. This sees this pretty much sees that Faulkner has got no legitimacy. He's not leading a party by this stage. Uh, he's seen as lost the confidence of the unionist people. So February happens, and then in May. They decide to call a general strike and over takes a wee bit of time to get going. But after a while, they've paralysed the entirety of Northern Ireland and and essentially the, the executive is down within two weeks because literally the, 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 the province is at a standstill. Uh, you mentioned Quebec, Quebec and uh, I know you've got a big interest. There were two um, referenda on Quebec uh, breaking away uh, from Canada, I know you've used that example in comparison to the Scottish situation. Um, tell us what happened. Those were both non. Que c'est l'option du non qui remportera ce référendum. Donc, yeah. So um, again, we're going back to the 19, so 1976. The Parti Québécois under René Lévesque win their first ever election. He's first time ever a separatist premier comes to power uh, in Canada. Uh, he holds a referendum in 1980 on, on that question of uh, of uh, separation or sovereignty association, as Quebec separatists call it. There'd still be some association with Canada, but they would have essentially become uh, uh, um, an, an independent state. Um, uh, that is lost pretty decisively, 60-40, but it mobilizes people. It mobilizes huge turnout as well. And, uh, and when the Quebec separatists lose it, um, uh, René Lévesque on the night of uh, when he's conceding defeat says à la prochaine fois until next time 
uh, was his uh, was his chant to to his followers, and um, uh, it was very much seen as gearing up that there would be another time for Quebec uh, separatists as well. So uh, uh, the the Quebec separatists uh, lose um, lose an election in the mid 1980s. Um, uh, Quebec famously does not sign the Canadian Constitution, so Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, creates kind of a new constitution for Canada in the early 1980s. Quebec refuses to sign up. René Lévesque is the Premier. He refuses to sign up to it. Um, his successor is Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who's also a Quebecer, tries to get Quebec into the constitution um, through the Meech Lake Constitutional Accord. That basically recognises Quebec as a distinct society within Canada. That doesn't pass. Um, uh, other uh, other provinces fail to ratify it, and that fuels separatist feeling within Quebec uh, as well. There's big political scandal at the time. Lucien Bouchard, who was a senior Conservative cabinet minister in, Mo- in Brian Mulroney's government, resigns in disgust, joins the Parti Québécois, <laughs> becomes a separatist, and uh, leads the referendum campaign in 1995 to for Quebec to to leave Canada. So, which was lost. By the closest of margins, it was it was razor thin. So, nineteen ninety four, the Parti Québécois come back to power, um, and they hold a referendum the following year. And yeah, it was incredibly close. It was it started off with the no side having a big lead, but within a month, Lucien Bouchard, who was a very popular um, uh, figure within Quebec politics, he comes back and leads the campaign, and the polls dramatically narrow. Um, and he, uh, they come within one percentage point. It took 94% of the results had to be in before the CBC, the Canadian broad, main Canadian broadcaster, could project a winner. Um, so it was very, very, very close. Um, and significantly in that referendum, uh, 59% of francophones, so French speakers in Quebec, voted yes in the referendum. Um, uh, 41% voted no. Those, those, even though that breakdown there, really... I can see a similar breakdown in terms of maybe a future United Ireland poll here. This issue died, really, in 1995. What can we take in terms of the lessons for here from that? And is there a danger for Republicans here? If if, if they get a border poll and if they lose the border poll, it's you just can't guarantee there'll be another one in 10 years. No, absolutely. I mean, there's 15 years between the two in, in Quebec. Um, ultimately, you need to create the critical mass. But, you know, the issue that Quebec separatists have had is that once people have given their verdict twice and once people have said no twice, most people don't really focus on politics. Most people don't want big divisive questions but because it was a very divisive issue in Quebec very divisive in Scotland too a lot of people find the referendum really uncomfortable and they find referenda really uncomfortable a lot of people find that in the Brexit referendum they didn't like how it pitted people against each other Um, you probably only really get two goes and if you feel twice it's very hard to say that there's momentum for your campaign to continue. Quebec separatism has ever since really been on the downward slide now. They're now the Parti Québécois, the, which was the main separatist force for 40 years in that province, now isn't even the official opposition in the Quebec Assembly. Um, it's, uh, it is on its knees. And even the, 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 the modern federal separatists, the Bloc Québécois, even though they have rebuilt, they're very much a we won't stop federalism type party now. We'll represent Quebec's interests in the federal parliament. So they're a much different force than they were before. But it's you, you really only have two goes really to make this happen. Do you see real political momentum for a border poll here? Or is it merely 
Is it is it just effective propaganda? It, 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 it's hard to know where the next turn comes from in our local politics. If we were sitting here in 2015, or 2016 actually, you would have sworn stacks that devolution was here to stay. It would never come down again. We had had nearly 10 years of unbroken devolution, and that was it. It had survived so many pitfalls, it was going to be there. And of course, seven months later, it crashed down around us. Um, I, I think that you never know what's around the corner. For example, after the 1980 Quebec referendum, someone famously declared uh, separatism is dead in Quebec. And of course, it came back and they, they were facing another referendum for too long. So you can never say never in politics. It, it fluctuates. Things change. Dynamics change. Um, there does seem to be a bit of wind in the sails of the nationalist forces, pro-unification forces. Unionism does seem to be under a bit of pressure at the minute with just the changes that are going on in terms of electorally. They're, they're, they're receding at council level, at assembly level, at Westminster level as well. It seems to be that big block of voters in the middle, that 15% plus now, which seems to be growing that are really the, the 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 powerhouse, really, and the deciders of of kind of where 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 this debate goes in the long term. And of course, when we say that fifteen percent block, you know that, that big block. I mean, someone might listen to a different country. It's fifteen percent that big, but then when you see where they are, it's that it's, it's their positioning within the, the the two the two main blocks, and it's that almost it's an extraordinary amount of power for a small amount of people that they probably do have. Well, also, well, when you consider the fact that when we look at referenda results, we're maybe talking about one side winning by as little as 1%, by maybe as much as 4 to 8%, that 15% is, is the margin of victory. That's no matter what way you cut it, that 15% decides so you, what side has a 5 in front of their total and what side has a 4. And it's that 15% that will decide it because there's a hardcore people who will who will no matter what you know the sky could be falling in in the south i would anticipate there's probably around about a third of the electorate no matter what would always vote for Irish unification no matter what the economic circumstances will be i would anticipate there's probably maybe around 38 to 40 percent would be the same for the union no matter what the uk economy could contract by double digits you know no matter what they will vote to stay within the uk it's that bit in the middle and there's a who can motivate that and it's quite significantly and polls are showing this when you include undecided both blocks are under 50% both blocks are under 50% and that makes it all to play for because the the if you look at the dynamics of referenda campaigns around the world the incumbent option whether it's in Quebec whether it's in Scotland they typically lose altitude in a campaign why? because they're defending the status quo and that, that's a very different campaign. You're trying to not scare, yes, scare people, but, but put fear into people about losing what they have. Whereas the side that wants change can be a bit more optimistic, can be a bit more hopeful. And again, we saw that in the Brexit referendum as well. Remain was quite naturally, they wanted to keep the status quo. So you're saying, if you vote this way, you will lose A, B and C. Whereas the Brexit campaign was able to say, vote, vote to leave and this lovely... These lovely planes will be there. All, whatever you want, you can attach whatever you want to it. So, and that happened in the Scottish referendum too. You can you can run the the the, the Irish unification campaign will will probably be able to run a much more hopeful campaign, a much more optimistic campaign because they're just not the status quo option. 
And on that question, and it's something which fascinates me because we we do an awful lot of talking about this question and we do an awful lot of writing about this question, but it's a small place we live and we know each other well. Is objective analysis of this question, whether there'll be a referendum and what the questions, you know, never, never even, is it really possible? If you live here, it's probably very hard to have an objective view because either, I would say that you're either if you're you're if you're for it, you know you're naturally going to want to be for it. You know you're not you you your mind. That's confirmation bias, right? You will look for things to reaffirm your opinion. We all do it on on other things outside of this. So you're going to want that. Even if you're none of the above, you're going to want to look for things that reaffirm maybe your opinion to your 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 opinion to not really have a defined view on it. You're going to look for those things. So maybe if a poll shows both blocks down below fifty percent, or maybe there's not a lot of interest in it. You're going to look for things to reaffirm that. So it is very difficult, I think, to get people who can just look at it totally objectively. Obviously, you can check your biases and things like that. And there are people who can do that and, and do that very well. But, you know, it's 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 very difficult if you live here because you've got such a vested stake in the success of this place and whatever way you want it to go. You know, you're, it's very, very difficult. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. Clips from AP, BBC and Sky. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.